The Bible tells me this. Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So the Bible never solves the issue of evil completely. It doesn't because evil is a complex matter, but it does resolve it. There's a difference. It says that there is an entity on the earth that is here to kill and destroy. And when you give him a foothold in every, any area of your life, any individual, you give him a foothold, he's able to come in and destruction happens. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. And today, Pastor Jeff is asking some tough questions, but he reminds us that God provides through the chaos. No matter where you find yourself in chaos or out of chaos, we can all think about a season of chaos that we've lived in, and we're continuing to investigate how we can resist the evil one who wants to destroy everything good in our lives. It's part of our series titled The Resistance, and if you've missed any of these episodes, I highly recommend that you go back and listen. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines. Uh, hey, I hope you are turned over to Romans 8, uh, 31. We're going to deal with a great passage of Scripture as we continue our series called uh, The Resistance. Now, here's how I want to start. I want you to, how many of you remember when you were in school, midterms and finals, Okay. Okay. Now, uh, I want to tell you about a humorous thing that happened. You know, if you go into midterm or finals, I don't know what it's like now, but back in the day, all right, no school like the old school. Back in the day, uh, when I would walk into uh, our seminary midterms or finals, you'd be given a booklet, a paper, basically, and you'd be given 10 questions, and you choose seven to answer. So you're talking about probably three hours of writing, and you had to answer them in detail. They were essay questions. I don't know if you do, you, do you still do things like that or is it multiple choice now? But anyway, if you go into a session like that, you could always tell the student who was in deep trouble because they'd kind of open the page and the questions would be there and they'd be searching for maybe a few that they knew. And if they just came to the conclusion they didn't know the answers to any questions, it was always humorous to see what, they, you know, they just lean back, take a big deep breath, you know, I'm done for. Now, I don't know what you call it now, but back in the day, uh, you could engage in a practice that was appropriately named padding. <laughs> padding is the practice of when you don't know the answer to any questions, you just start choosing questions, and you write everything you know that's even remotely related to the topic <laughs> in hopes that somewhere along the line you might hit at some truth and the professor would have mercy on you and at least pass you, okay? So there was a one student, I think it was my second year in seminary, he was writing profusely. I mean, he just writing about everything and anything. When he got his paper back, one of the most humorous responses by a professor that I've ever seen, in big red letters on the front page, it said, this is not right, this is not even wrong. 
Now you think about that. Think about it for a moment. When somebody says something, there's one of two responses. It's either right or it's wrong. But if someone says something that is completely nonsensical, then it doesn't even rise to the dignity of error. (laughs) To say that something is wrong assumes that something meaningful has been said. Now, you get it? So that, that, hilarious. That's not right. That's not even wrong. Okay. I start that way because, you know, we're in this series called The Resistance. And what we've been saying is that a lot of us severely underestimate that there is a prince of the power of the air in our lives. And Jesus taught this very clearly. And so if you're going to follow Christ and you're going to believe the Bible, you can't just believe in God. You've got to believe the same Bible that tells you that there is a God and that he is love and sent his son to die for you is the same Bible that goes out of its way to tell you there is a prince of the power of the air. There is an evil force behind evil thrones, behind the atrocious acts that you see. It's not just all that is seen, but there is something that is unseen. And that same evil power force is out really to destroy all your happiness your families, your wife, your children, your jobs, your careers, your hope, everything. And I know if you're skeptical, much like I was for many, many years, you come in and you think, man, you know, the devil, come on, 21st century. But I've asked you to admit from the get-go that there are simply some evil, atrocious things that happen in this world that you've got no explanation for. And the Bible tells you, here's your explanation. There's something happening behind the scenes. I'm, I'm right now in the process of finishing a book called Hitler's Cross by Erwin Lutzer, it reminds me of the evil, just the, the rank evil of the Third Reich. I mean, I'm learning things I didn't, I thought I knew I'm a World War I and II history buff. I had no idea some of the things that I'm learning that have been uncovered. For instance, I had no idea that Hitler was a Satanist. I did not know that he was trained by two very, very influential Satanists, the occult. One of the seven founders of Nazism took Hitler under his wing and personally mentored him spiritually into the occult, the seven stages. I did not know that at the inauguration of Hitler, that he actually used the words, Hitler's kingdom come, his will be done on the earth. He also said in his inauguration speech that if he did not succeed in his objective, he should be crucified. And he had his troops as they marched say this, it is no longer we who live, but Hitler who lives in us. I mean, as a Christian now, look at that. Wow, this guy was totally sacrilegious. There was a power behind the atrocious acts that the Third Reich committed. So you go on and on. Now, as a Christian, this is tough. Tough for me, tough for you. I hope you're honest enough to admit that because the Bible tells us this, that God determines who's on the throne and who's not. The Bible tells us nobody comes into power without God's approval. Nobody. Now that might be easy when you think of somebody like a Ronald Reagan or something, maybe not for some of you, but when you think of a a Hitler or Lenin or Stalin, I mean, the Bible's clear on this. And as, as somebody who reads the Bible, studies the Bible, this is a very difficult thing. I mean, think about the things that Hitler did. The little children in the gas ovens, you know, the, 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 the horrific murders, not just death, but torture and punishment and Ravensbrück and Auschwitz and the, the evil, atrocious things that still happen today in our culture and our world. We're, we're somewhat sheltered here in California. I mean, you know, we have some bad days, but nothing like what happens in so many other parts of the world. It happens every day starvation, those things. Why, why do they happen if God is sovereign on the throne? Now, it's tough to answer that. And if you're serious, you've been through a phase in your life where you've tried to grapple with that, a sovereign God and all the evil in this world. The problem is that the secularist doesn't help me any. The answer he gives me is nonsensical. Makes no sense because he tells me there's no God. He'll say to me, well, Pastor Jeff, the problem is there is so much evil and atrocious activity in the world that that proves God does not exist. But that's nonsensical. Remember what we've said? 
Think about it for a moment, because as soon as you admit that evil exists, you're admitting that God exists. Because only God can give you absolute moral categories to give you the definitive categories of good and evil. I think, just think about it. If you don't like that as a philosopher, just think about this for a moment. Folks, if we're just a collocation of chemicals, if, if we're just the result of time plus matter plus chance, come on then, why, why are you so upset when people die? It's the strengthening of the gene pool. Only the fittest and the strong survive, right? So you should be happy when all the Jews are murdered because Hitler believed they were corroding the bloodline. He was trying to come up with the Ubermensch, the Superman, the superhuman, the Aryan domination race. So when people die, you should be thankful because you're the strong, they're the weak, they need to die so the gene pool will be strengthened. That is evolution. It is red and tooth and claw, right? So what's the big idea? See, as soon as you start... As soon as you start complaining about people dying and suffering and pain, you know what you're assuming? That life by nature has intrinsic value and that life is sacred. The reason you get upset when children die, uh, at poverty, at famine, at earthquakes, at tsunamis, the reason you get upset is because you, you, there's something inside you that believes that life is sacred, that it's special that it has intrinsic worth, but it doesn't have intrinsic worth if there's no God. If we're here by accident, we're just here by accident. We come, we go, that's it. But if we're created in the image of God and that life is sacred, then there's such a thing as evil in the world. That's why the true atheist will tell you, at least he's consistent, he'll tell you there's no such thing as evil. No such thing. No matter what kind of example you give him, he'll say, well, I don't like it, but it's not evil. Because once you assume the category of evil, you're assuming good, you're assuming moral law to distinguish between the two, and you're assuming that God exists to give you the moral law. And you say, well, why can't somebody else give us the moral law? And the answer, of course, is because when we ask the question of evil, we do it in the context of sacred of life, sacred sanctity, intrinsic worth. Now, the Bible tells me this. Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus says, how to... The Bible never solves the issue of evil completely. It doesn't because evil is a complex matter, but it does resolve it. There's a difference. It says that there is an entity on the earth that is here to kill and destroy. And when you give him a foothold in every, any area of your life, any individual, you give him a foothold, he's able to come in and destruction happens. And when there's a person that's close to you that allows the devil in, the destruction happens around them. And sometimes you reap the ramifications. C.S. Lewis said this. He said that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There is a constant battle, a constant war, and a passage of scripture that has bothered me for a long time is 2 Corinthians 4.4 that says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the Bible tells me one of the things he wants to do in this series we call the resistance is blind unbelievers is somehow make them apathetic toward the existence of God, or maybe through philosophical arguments come to the conclusion that there is no God. Now, I say all that to say this. Even though there are footholds we give the evil one, even though he has the goods on us and there's one weakness he targets, the reality is that through the events of a broken planet, Satan hopes to destroy your faith in God's promises, power, and purposes in this world and in your life. That's what he wants to do. He wants to get you sidetracked. He wants you to look at the chaos all around your life, the way things are not going well, and say, wow, I don't think I can believe in the power and the purposes, the providence of God, not only in the world, but in my life. That's one of his primary, primary objectives. Now, in Romans 8, Paul gives you the answer. 
He doesn't solve the problem of evil, but he does resolve it. And look at how he does it. It's beautiful. It's, it's broken up into two parts. In the word, here we go. He says this, what then, this is after the context of talking about evil now for about three chapters, what then shall we say in response to these things, to all the atrocities and chaos of the world? If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on to say, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who then is the one who condemns? And he goes on to say, no one. You see what he's doing in this first segment? Here's what he's doing. He is saying this, no matter how bad things are inside you, God still loves you. No matter how bad things are inside you, God still loves you. Now, you think about this for a moment. How many of you have ever done anything that you stood back and said, wow, I cannot believe I just did that? <laughs> Am I the only one? You've never flipped anybody off on the 210. <laughs> yeah. You say, well, actually, Pastor Jeff, when I did that, I knew I was capable of that. But have you ever done anything you step back and say, I cannot believe I did that. Now, I told you something that I did when I was 16 years old, and I thought my dad was going to kick me out of the house, and he didn't, thank God. He showed me grace and mercy. But I remember feeling the way I felt after I did I thought, wow, I cannot believe you, Jeffrey A. Vines, did that. You know, you know, how did you? The Bible tells us that when you do that, and you do do that, that the devil automatically moves in, and what does he do? You're a worthless man. You're pathetic. You call yourself a Christian. You go to church. You might as well stop. And whatever you do, you don't deserve to pray anymore. See, that's, that's not God. Because what God does, he, he does this. Hey, wait, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. You weren't saved because you were good, and you're not kept because you were good. He says, who is it that justifies? He, he says, God justifies. Why does he do that? He's trying to help you understand the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion says you justify yourself. Be good, be good, be good. Don't flip people off on the 210. Be good, be good, be good. The Bible says you ain't good enough to be good. Try because that's the best way life is lived. And if you live within my parameters, it will be the abundant life, but you're going to fail. And when you do, God says, who can bring a charge against you? Nobody, because I'm the one who justified you. And that's good news. So he says, no matter what's going on inside you, and some of you got some pretty bad stuff happening inside you. How do I know? Because it's happening in me too. So whatever's happening inside you, no matter how bad it is, God still loves you. Now, then he, then he goes to the second argument. He says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, okay, now he's shifted gears. Trouble, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers can separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. You see what he's doing? He's saying, look at the world around you. Look at how, yes, there's evil, there's chaos, there's things that are unfathomable, but God still loves you no matter how bad things are inside you. Then he moves on to the second argument. God still loves you no matter how bad things are outside of you. See, oh, we love the first part. Oh, yeah, I'm down with that, Pastor Jeff. God loves me no matter what man's happening in me. I like that. And Paul says, okay, you like that? Good. Understand it's connected to something else. God also loves you even when there's bad stuff happening outside of you. And when you start to doubt that, think about it. Have you ever seen something, you say, man, that is just pure evil. Or you get frustrated because things aren't going the way you think they ought to go in your life or around you. And the temptation will come. The temptation will come that, you know what? God, I can't trust him. His promises, his power, and his providence. I can't trust him because, look, if he were in charge, it wouldn't be happening like this. And Paul says, wait a minute. 
God still loves you no matter what is going on inside you, but he still loves you no matter what's going on outside. You're not God. Now, I think it's amazing every time I read, I've read everything Corey Ten Boom has written. I, I, and I read them over and over again, usually around Christmas, New Year's. I get in a cold place in the corner and just read The Hiding Place or what a godly woman, a woman that can go through what she went through and still say, no matter how deep the pit of despair, God's love is deeper still. Here's what I want to do. Every time the Bible gives you a truth like this, every single time, it, it connects ultimate reality with everyday living. So Paul says, this is the way reality is. God loves you. And now, how can I apply that to everyday living? If I have a hard time applying it, I find that if I can go back to the Old Testament, I will usually find a story that solidifies what's been said in the New. They're so well connected. You know, I told you that the Old Testament isn't a story about how good people are. There's nobody good in the Old Testament, I'm telling you. Have you ever read it? That's the difference between the Old Testament and other religious books. Other religious books of legend tell you these great people. The Old Testament is filled with bad people, man. Can you say Abraham and Hagar? I mean, come on. Nothing goes, I mean, everybody's doing the thing that God told them not to do, and yet he's still merciful and gracious and kind. It's not a book about how bad men are. It's a book about how good God is. And so here's what happens. I want to take you to a city by the name of Dothan. Two people, one city, generations apart. The first is Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. The problem is, you've heard it so often that the stories become somewhat benign. Because Joseph is a spoiled little brat, if you know the story. Because his daddy, who's living his life vicariously through Joseph, because Joseph is handsome and he's strong and he's well-built, the Bible says, and he's smart. The Bible says his dad makes him a coat of many colors. Now, it, dads, it's not wise to give one son a coat of many colors without giving the other sons a coat of many colors. What does he think the other sons are going to do? They hate Joseph. And then sometimes, guys, if you have a good dream, keep it to yourself. Because Joseph has these dreams. He's growing up in a time of primogeniture when the younger serves the older. But he comes up with these dreams of the stars and the sun and the moon and the, the stalks of corn and the wheat. And they're all bowing down to Joseph. Of course, okay, that's all well and good because it's a prophecy that's going to come true. But Joseph, keep that to yourself, man. And he keeps telling his brothers, oh, hey, let me tell you this dream I had. Hey, this dream, you're going to serve me. Okay, don't do that. Or you'll get killed. Because he goes out to Shechem to bring some bread and cheese to his brothers. They're not there. They moved on to Dothan. And Dothan is like, like kind of, what happens in Dothan stays in Dothan. Not because it's unpopular, but because it's so isolated, nobody will ever hear about it. So his brothers say, this is our opportunity. We're so isolated, let's kill Joseph. So they take Joseph, and the Bible says they stripped him. The Hebrew word actually means skinned. So it's very violent. They rip his clothes off. They throw him down into the pit. The Hebrew word is catapulted. They just threw him into the pit, hoping maybe that the fall itself would kill him. And the Bible says that Joseph cries out from the pit. I mean, he actually, the story says he cried. He's, he's weeping. Please help me. Please. And he says, why, God? Why is this happening? And you know what happens in the story? Nothing. Nothing. He just cries and nobody responds. And this starts a series of chaotic events, slavery, torture, prison. We're not talking about weeks and months. We're talking about years off of Joseph's life. Now get this. If you know anything about the story, though, you know that if everything that happened to Joseph did not happen in the exact order, in the exact timing, then everybody in the story dies. The nation of Israel dies of starvation and famine. The Messianic bloodline is ruined and there's no Messiah to come. 
Everything that seemed chaotic in Joseph's life actually ended up bringing salvation not only to Joseph, but to God's people. Because Joseph will end up becoming the ruler of all of Egypt and will provide the food necessary to keep the Jewish nation, the Hebrews, alive. And yet, if you read through the book of Genesis, all the way up until you get to Joseph, you hear about God, God's name, God is speaking, God is working with his people. Then you get to Joseph, God never speaks. So Joseph's not only going through this, he's going through this without God speaking to him. Matter of fact, God's never even referred to. He's assumed, but never referred to. It seems that God is completely and utterly absent in Joseph's life, but the reality is this. Though God seems to be completely absent on the surface, he was managing down to the minutest details all the chaotic, awful, terrible things that were happening in Joseph's life, every single one of them. Now, I've told you my affinity for African-American preachers. I love those guys, man. It's like God just gave them a special gift. They have a way of telling a story. They're dramatic. I heard a pastor preaching on the text of Joseph one time, an African-American pastor. It wasn't Pastor Leroy Brown that I tell you about in Knoxville, Tennessee. This was another guy, fiery guy, and he did this. Now, I can't do it as good as he can for obvious reasons. <laughs> but the material's so good, I've got to try. So you're just going to have to imagine. Now, I still have this message that he preached on uh, VHS. Now, uh, for you young guys, that's a big square box. <laughs> it goes into a thing called a VCR. You actually can rewind and fast forward. And if you don't rewind, they charge you 50 cents. And so in that sermon, here's what he said. And I love it. It's so good. He's, he stands up and he's got this authoritative voice and he says, had Joseph not been given a coat of many colors, his brothers would not have been jealous. Had Joseph's brothers not been jealous, they would not have thrown him into the pit. Had they not thrown him into the pit, Joseph would not have been sold to the passing Ishmaelites. But had they not been sold or had he not been sold to the passing Ishmaelites, he would not have gotten down to Egypt. Had Joseph not gotten down to Egypt, he would not have been sold on the oxen block. Had he not been sold on the oxen block, Joseph would not have been purchased by Paul. Potiphar. Had he not been purchased by Potiphar, he would not have become overseer over Potiphar's household. Had Joseph not become overseer over Potiphar's household, he would never have been falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar. Had he not been falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar, Joseph would have not been thrown into prison. And had Joseph not been thrown into the prison, he would have never met the baker nor the butler. And had Joseph never met the baker nor the butler, Joseph could not have interpreted their dreams. And had he not interpreted their dreams, the butler would have never been before the great king. And had he never sat before the great king, the butler could have not told the king about Joseph. And had the butler not told the king about Joseph, Joseph would have not stood before the great king. And had Joseph not stood before the great king, he could not have interpreted the king's dreams. And had Joseph not interpreted the king's dreams, he would not have found favor with the king. And had he not found favor with the king, Joseph would not have been ruler over all of Egypt. And had he not been ruler over all of Egypt, Joseph could not have saved the entire nation of Israel. And then he put his foot on the ground and said, Joseph wasn't going down. He was going up. <laughs> You can imagine that, can't you? The thing about the story is, and man, I wish I could tell it like he did, is that Joseph, his predicament, it, God was not only saving the nation of Israel, God was actually saving Joseph too. Because Joseph, if he's not rejected and sold into slavery, the thing about Joseph is he, he needed to be saved from his pride and his arrogance and the wicked person he was becoming. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. With some of the chaos that's in some of your lives, God's trying to save you from yourself. I just want you to think about something for a moment. I don't think we're ever gonna figure out why God allows what he allows 
and stops what he stops because he's infinite and we're finite. But can I leave you with two things? Number one, we don't know all the things God has prevented. Do you know why? Because he prevented them. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines.